Hey there, this is Bobby with the Rock Guys Podcast, and you are listening to Marv Smooth on the Pods Like Us Podcast. Check him out. And welcome to Pods Like Us. I'm Martin Quibell, known to my friends as Marv. And this time I'm speaking with, at long last, I've been looking forward to this one, with Nick from the Beatles-related show, Winter of Discontent. Hi, Nick. Thanks for speaking with me. Hiya, Marv. It's good to be here. It's great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Been a while. Been a while waiting for this one, haven't we? I've not done anything like this, so, uh, you know, bear with me. I'm a waffle. I think it'll be the first of many, because I know a lot of Beatles podcasters who are looking forward to this one. Oh, fabulous. Okay, well, I'll, I'll talk as much as I can then. Yeah. Ed, Ed Chen, is, he, he, he wanted to take part, but he's only just gone out of bed. Oh, yeah, it's fair enough then. Yeah. That's, that's Ed from when there was fab for anybody listening. Oh. So um, one, one of the ones I listened to. That's good. That's good. Um, other people... Who, who, who said, oh, wow, are uh, Kito Tool and Tom and Sam Wiles, they've all mentioned in passing. And, oh, and Anthony Rattuno, who does the Beatles, oh, I mean, yes. the John Lennon yeah, one he's, on, on he's Glass Onion. Very, Anthony's been very supportive. Uh, he, he direct messages me on, on Twitter sometimes to offer support, which I think is, you know, that's, that's excellent. People have been, nothing actually... Other than complimentary, I'm I'm very very flattered. It's it's an interesting one because you've got all these different shows that are related to Beatles and solo Beatles, but the for the most part there doesn't seem to be any uh, competition, shall we say, between all the shows. They seem to be all like almost like a family in supporting each other. Yes, yeah, yeah. But they they have a different different take, don't they? I think the only two that are probably rivals is um, Mr. Buskin and uh, uh, and the um, something about the Beatles guy whose name escaped me, um, because they obviously work together, and now they they um, have kind of rival shows, don't they? Yes, yes, they do. I know, I know where you're on about. There. We won't go into more detail there. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they, but they're both excellent in their own way. So, you know, we get, they I, are. I dare say, everyone's a winner, really. Yes, yes. You've, you've quoted an, an Apple act there. And what, everyone's a winner? Yeah. Hot chocolate. Uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> the, the infamous oh, gift piece of chance. I need to be on my toes a bit more, don't I? <laughs> Sorry, Nick. 
Oh dear. Sh- shall I quit with the uh, pop references? No, keep going. Yeah. Keep okay. going. Okay. So what's your own spot them? So what's your own personal history with the Beatles then? How did you discover them and how old were you when you first discovered them? Uh, I was uh, I was probably I was, you know, I'm a I'm a child of the 70s, really, not to, yep. to give me age away too much. But um we had my my parents. Um, even though my my dad was a musician, he was a, a bandsman in the army. Um, we didn't have anything like a particularly good record collection or anything like that. But okay. we had family friends who had this. It was one of those things you aspired to. <laughs> and and I think now when people collect vinyl, now it's become a a thing again. But they had this like a wall of vinyl records, you know, like a long shelf. And and I was fascinated with those. And um, in there, they had two Beatles albums. They had um, a, an original pressing Sergeant Pepper, which was you know with all the really bright colours, um, and um, the cardboard insert and all of that. And they had Let It Be in the box, and in the box wow. was the book. And in um, and I remember. Uh, Oh my God! Every time we went round, I had to look at that book, and and it, as as we all know, that that was the the one that was um, not very well bound, and all the pages had fell out. So it was in no particular order when I was looking at it. But the pictures used to absolutely just transfix me, really, um, and that really began my interest. Um, and I kind of. There was a little bit of a beetle resurgent in the 80s for obvious re- reasons, but uh, I, I like to think I was a little bit ahead at that because I was um, I got the, the red and the blue albums for, for a birthday, I think. Um, and then just as I was getting into the band, John was killed. Yeah. Um, which was when, for someone you're only just getting to know to just disappear like that. It was... I would have been, uh, well, uh, before my teenage anyway. So it was like like a bereavement of a relative or something. Yep, same here. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a real shock. So and that's really, in the end, that's what uh, pulled me into it even further. I think that was the first, um, I, I vaguely remember Elvis's passing, very vaguely. Uh, yeah. From back then, but but John, it was very. Um, I was that age where it did actually because I was ten, just ten years old, just at that time, and it, it was strange because it affected me because, like like you said, I mean, I was the same. I'd just sort of got really into them, and I was playing the albums that my dad and my mum owned, and uh, listening to them a lot, and. Uh, yeah, so I actually remember that as well and being shocked about it. So that would be my first experience of yeah. of a response to a uh, to a star or you know, dare I say, icon passing away. Yeah, yeah, and in such a horrific way as well. I think that was the yeah. shock of it. Um, Absolutely. You know, um, and and from there, uh, the first. First record I bought with my own money, record album was Let It Be. Okay, um, 
uh, hoping, obviously, or expecting there'd be a box with a book in it, which, of course, there wasn't. Yeah. Um, but it's still, you know, it's 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 kind of my gateway in, into their story, and obviously it dominates my life still. <laughs> Hi, this is Katie of Bad Council, with some good counsel. You should keep listening to Marv at Pods Like Us. <laughs> I do know that the Let It, the Let it Be set, uh, haven't they said that they're actually putting that original book in the reissue that's coming out soon? That, I haven't seen it yet. I mean, yeah, there is obviously there's like a five disc set, isn't there? Yeah. Um, although I think from what I've heard, there's, there's a kind of weird... Isn't it one disc an EP or something? It's like it is, EP, yeah. There's four songs on there as an EP. Yeah, it's rather strange. But you do just... get, which is more interesting, I think, the original Glyn Johns um, mix uh, of the I album. Think, yeah. I think there's two jingle, Jim, uh, two Glyn Johns mixes, actually. Is there? Yeah. Mm, I'm, I think just, it I'm says... just looking at the insert that came with the book. It says here, six-disc yeah. edition. Uh, Let It Be plus two CDs of outtakes, jams, rehearsals and studio chat plus the Get Back album 1969 mixed by Glyn Johns, Let It Be EP right. and Let It Be EP, which, yeah, right. which I don't know what that is. So it's just but the yeah, to, for, From what I've heard of that, obviously most of us have heard the bootleg of the Glyn Johns mix. Um, I've certainly which, heard that with rock yeah, around there which, and whatever, yeah. Yeah, which you hear from uh, beneath a sort of uh, a layer of dust and fluff and um, multiple tape copies. So to hear it cleaned up is is fascinating. Yeah. So, I'd, yeah, I'll be looking forward to hearing that. Me too. But saying that, I mean, you know, it's one of those sets where you just know that people are going to say, oh, do you know, I was really hoping for that. It's, oh, it's yeah. like... It's like they can never please the fan because they'll always be. Oh, why didn't Why didn't you do an old CD of songs that they ended up doing themselves outside of the Beatles and that sort yeah. of thing? But yeah, I mean, to make that entertaining, though, I I mean, I don't know. I haven't really got that far. But a lot of when they're doing outtakes or or tracks that are listed as being, you know, a cover version of a song or whatever, they're not. You know, oh, fully fledged, yeah. polished recordings, are they? So, in, in order yeah. to make them work, I think they'd be doing a tremendous amount of um, post production on them and and and, and cheating. Yeah, <laughs> so yes. To make it yeah. to make it to make it listenable. So, I can't see. You know, even when you saw it on anthology, they did a medley of their rock and roll tunes, and that that was, uh, yeah, that uh, was yeah. polished up. And, and edited together to, to sound more, <laughs> yeah, considerably less ragged than it really was. Yeah, a bit like the uh, the White Album version of I'm I'm of uh, no not guilty, where that was little clips from different takes of the same song that were yeah. very cleverly and I've got to say, expertly put together. Yeah, but you have to you have to see it from their point of view. They're not. They're doing it for fans as well as the, the sort of casual listener as well, aren't they? Or people who are new to the band. They've got to please everybody, haven't they? So, and it'll be it'll be the same with the um, the way that the the TV program is put together. 
that's that's really going to be it's got to have a story and it's got to be entertaining so yeah some of those songs as well from the sessions you, you don't get that good interpretations of so like um when paul's doing the piano for backseat of my car in the background mm. that's all it is there's nothing more to it it's just him just there doodling away yeah. on this tune that is stuck in his head that he can't quite finish and that's all that it is you haven't got fully fleshed out versions of a lot of these songs and some of them like the cover versions like you said you know you've only got like john will go 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 through a song for 30 seconds to a minute or something then go now whatever what's next what we're doing now and there's a lot of that going on in there as well yeah it's a it's a little bit of uh word association you know um where someone might say a phrase and someone then, you know, sings a line from it, they pick that up and then it gets put down again. And it's it's quite staggering the number of songs they have in their repertoire. Right? Yeah, absolutely. That they all know. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, that's, that's what they have, is this encyclopedic um, knowledge of, of material that they can just pull out just like that, um, which is... It's a, it's a unique quality. I don't I don't really know of a lot of um, other bands that, that work that way or have that kind of uh, a relationship. You know, no, I do know a band that I used to be in. We used to have this thing where um, I don't know if it was just us that did it, but we used to have this thing where we'd we'd find find a group that we want to cover a song by, and <laughs> the lead guitarist used to just say to me, right, off you go, learn the entire album and come back. Mm. And we'd be like, I'd be like, oh, okay. So I'd go away and I'd learn an entire album and then we'd end up, I'd only learn it so that we'd do one or two songs off off that album by that band. But I think he was basically pushing for us to be better or to stretch ourselves basically and better our abilities. So if you're only trying to learn one song, but then again, with the Beatles as well, you got the thing where they said, didn't they, were they learned that much material so that if they were on stage and a band was on before them and they came up with a song that they were going to do, they'd just sort of go, do you know what, we'll take that out and we'll put this one in. And they were able to do that. So I think that's where that comes from with the guys, where they had that knowledge from back in the late 50s, the early 60s. So they had those songs that they could fall back on that they'd replace a song in the set with whatever. Absolutely. I mean, I had... Um... Read a lot of the social media postings and some of the groups and stuff. Yeah. Um, where you do you do find it it's sort of often when I'm looking at something and one of these posts will come out of the blue that answers a question I had, yeah. you know, um, which is it just seems to be like amazing timing. But um one of the things that uh, someone had posted was how the the set worked at Hamburg. I forget which club, probably top 10 or something like that. And um, they worked from, I mean, if if you're playing in bands, you know this, you do. I mean, these days you have to do three hours. That's that's what's expected. And it used to be an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, but um, they would do an hour, seven o'clock, hour and a half to 8.30, half hour break. Uh, no, it was an hour set. I've got it wrong. Let me start again. So seven o'clock to eight, half hour break, eight thirty to nine thirty, half hour break, 
10 till 11. 10 till 11, half yep. hour break. 11.30 to 12.30, half hour break. You see what I mean? So it go, it will go on then till I think about half two. Yeah. So they were doing something like seven sets over the course of the night, which absolutely must be exhausting. Yeah. I mean, what it must do to your fingertips, let alone anything else, uh, and your and your voice. You know, it's it's quite it's quite amazing. I mean, they were young, and they and there's a lot of adrenaline involved in that. Um, but uh, and I know there was some of that was chemical other substances. Yeah. yeah, it's still it's still amazing that they were doing that and they were trying not to repeat themselves the whole way through absolutely yeah and the and the, there's the famous um I'm, we're not I'm not sure whether it's completely true or not the famous story of ringo coming in for the late sets and they throw blues numbers in there as well yeah yeah so, yeah they'd slow it down towards the end wouldn't they which, well, yeah. which is again, that's reading your audience, I suppose. When everybody stopped dancing and they're all just <laughs> sitting in the booths, all drunk, um, it probably suited the the uh, environment they're in. Well, they're probably um, too probably too drunk to get up and dance along to the fast numbers. Absolutely. I mean, the the other fascinating thing I covered it in one of the shows when we were talking about the the nineteen sixty tape that they they made. several tapes around Paul's house and they were so I mean that's that's the band that went to Hamburg yeah that rough rough and ready sound is is what went to Hamburg with um, when they finally recruited Pete Um, so that's what they were roughly what they would have sounded like when they first came out and in fact they weren't embarrassed by that because they shared that with friends yeah so they had, you know, that how they developed, you can see from that that's their starting point, which is, which is amazing because they obviously, you know, had made a quantum leap while they were there. Yeah, they did. I'm Agent Scott, and I'm Cam the Provocateur, and we're from the Spy Hards Movie Podcast. That's right, and you are listening to pods like us the podcast that has a license to thrill but well i mean that touches on what uh, i put on the notes there where basically it it's incredible because you can actually see how they grew creatively and personally through those very few years that they were together they grew mm. they grew more than a lot of bands can probably grow through 20 30 years nowadays it's a, it's a hot house isn't it i think they were um they probably spent every waking hour with each other for a good many years um so they they grew together in that environment and and they're still when you get to January 69, they're still feeding off that. They're in, still in that bubble. Um, so the, the, they, there's, everything's self-referential. They, they quote their own songs at each other. They do. Um, they always talk about things that only, ha- they only happened within their circle or people they know from within their circle. And, and it's, it's, yeah, the, the, it enables me to like, they make a reference to something. Um, and I'm finding that I can, I, 
because it is so insular, I can find a way of telling their whole story it's almost in flashback because they keep referring to the past all the time. Yeah, so I mean, that's, uh, it's, yeah, the, the, so the, the growth of them as artists, I mean, even during, you know, as they go along, so they've still got that knowledge that they had and the songs that they learnt from back in those days of Hamburg and the, the bars. But throughout the years, even in these sessions, you know, the, the Nagra reels, you can actually hear them doing songs that are later as well. So they'll all, one of them will start a Dylan song and they all have that yeah. love of Dylan and they'll all join in with each with each other when they'll go into a Dylan song. So yeah. even John throughout the years, knows, there's more stuff. John clearly knows I shall be released on that, um, which is a basement tape, I think, at the time. Oh, God, yeah, um, yeah. And uh, But when George plays that on the first day, John is playing along with him. Um so he, he's listening. He's still studying music. Yeah, yeah. And they're still quoting from later Motown songs that weren't they weren't they weren't playing back then that have been since they were recording the cover versions and the old Beatles albums. So yeah. they'll they'll start doing songs that are post that period. So they they're definitely taking in the music throughout the years as well while they're together and doing albums. Yeah, because it, it's all yeah, there. Yeah, they were part of the scene. They they were at the clubs all the time, weren't they? You know, there was. I mean, this. What did uh, what did home life have to offer you, really? <laughs> um, back in those days, apart from the telly, which was off most of the day anyway, wasn't it? So, so you had a social life. You went round each other's houses, and you you know you went out to places and did things. Um, but even even then, with the television, you, you mentioned in your in your show where. Uh, they'll appear in the morning and they'll say, "Oh, I watched this on the television," and they'll they'll share that they both that they all watch that people watch the same programs. Yeah, and John will start quoting from songs that he heard in the previous night's Top of the Pops or something. Yeah, there yeah, that was an eye opener because if yeah, if you look, you can obviously get the um, the listings. It's quite easy to find the listings for yeah. the previous day's telly and things like that, and. Uh, and in that, looking at the top of the Pops edition that was there, you could see who had appeared. And lo and behold, the next day they're running through Obladi, Obladar, and, uh, you know, what, what else they are? Um, Sabre Dance. That's, yeah, These that's are all the songs one that jumps that, out at me. Yeah. yeah, they're all songs that appeared on the previous night's, night's television. So yeah. it's it's really interesting that you, you're actually in there with them. You know what I mean? It's that you can... Um, you can get inside their their thoughts and their, their what's influencing what they're doing. Absolutely. Um, looking at the, as I say, you, I haven't put out the uh, the third season, which is going to be January the sixth. But that's to my ears quite strongly influenced by the fact that they've all watched um, Cream um, on their their um, farewell concert on the television the previous night. <laughs> Because wow. that's the first time they start jamming kind of endlessly. That's cool. Start... That then, yeah, that's cool that they're being inspired then by, by yeah, something that's now. Yeah, even if it's subconsciously, now... they think, yeah. oh, you know, let's see what's contemporary. And I think they, they always did have an eye on that. Um, but uh, also with a with an aim to be, um, you know, on the cutting edge. So as what did John say that the 
they were in in the crow's nest. You know, they're on the ship. We're all on the ship, but they were in the crow's nest, and they could see what was coming before everyone else. Yeah. Something and like that. Actually, if somebody's after a subject to uh, that's not been covered, that would be a fascinating uh, dive into the very short but inspirational career of um, Cream. Hmm. Yeah, I mean there are some there are some documentaries, but yeah, that's an interesting. I mean Eric Eric Clapton's career is uh, is peculiar up to that point anyway, because he seemed to seemed to be quite reluctant to be uh, successful, didn't he? He kept bailing out of everything <laughs> everything he did that was successful. He, he pulled away from. So, yeah. yeah, I was I was speaking with uh, with Jason Cruper and uh, Ken Womack the other week for my other show, the the George Harrison show. And uh, I was saying how, um, in a way, it's it's strange with Eric because he's there being the you know oh, I'm I'm the you know I'm all for the blues, and I said, but there he is playing with what he even said himself was a pop band with the Beatles, and that mm. that was the actual phrase that he used. But he's always there talking to the th- talking to the four of them and jamming with with George. And, yeah. with, and with John, you know, so th- there's a sort of dichotomy there with, with John, with jo- with Eric, I mean. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think he was he was very much um, uh, a little bit elitist at the start, I, at the start, I think, with because he thought he didn't want to know you if you didn't know who, you know, Robert Johnson was or something like that. Yeah. Um, but then again, he didn't mind. Uh, it, it that I think actually has a lot to do with. Um, here we go. Uh, it, one of the early episodes, Charlotte Martin, who was his girlfriend. Yep. Who, much like the way that Yoko would have done with John, or in fact Patty did with George to an extent, um, widened his social circle uh, yep. to include artists and you know classical musicians or whoever you know uh, and broadened his horizons and so maybe that's that's what got him out of his little um narrow narrow view for a little while yeah well the same I'd thing like happened, to think so. yeah the same thing happened with paul and linda essentially because she because through linda he uh, became part of the eastman family and that that changed the way that paul would be from from then on Yes, is that there is a ch- there is a change in him, yeah. um, from that point. I think um, when he's no longer the playboy man about town, um, yeah, it's, I think she she supplied him with a kind of ready made family, which he's which he seemed to need. I mean, he's he's from a, a very close family as it is, yeah, and I think he wanted one of his own. Um, and she, and she gave him that, and, and obviously it definitely worked for the both of them, didn't it? So, yeah, I mean, Paul always had, he always seemed to have that enormous family that that were always there. Whereas I don't think John, I don't think John had the same sort of uh, family background for certain. I don't. No, I don't if, think you, they did if as, you look at his his short life, really. Uh, and then you look at the events of it. It's it's turmoil from start to finish, really, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's uh, it, yeah. It's one kind of 
you can un- you can understand how that would affect a person. That uh, it's very damaging for a child. That kind of instability. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely had had a long lasting effect on his personality, which he ever really got the chance to resolve. Really, no, no, because he's always thrown between. Is either with his mother or is with his auntie or somebody else. So he's always thrown, as, as we say, in, is in, <laughs> we, we know this phrase, don't we? He's thrown from from pillar to post. So yeah. he's got no actual stability there that's constant, whereas Paul always had that stability yeah. with his father and, and his mother before she died and with the, with Mike, his brother. There was always that there, and then the, the Robins and all the other parts of the McCartney clan and, and all that. So Paul always had that, whereas John didn't. And even George had that to a degree with the Harrison family as well. They yeah. were quite large and always family-based. And, and Ringo's family. And Ringo his, as well, uh, yeah. With his stepdad, I think, you know, they, they did uh, had a tremendous influence on him. Um, you know, that was a very doting family as well. As I say, I think um, uh, what it created in John, and, and you, you see that with a number of other some of the biggest stars we have had this gaping sort of emotional void that that, that needs to be filled with love and adoration and that's what they crave and that's why they pursue this you know show business but that's also why they create create this music because that comes from that need as well they're actually putting into their music that need that they're after yeah yeah even though it's a craft yeah there's a there's a a large part of, of sort of self-examination in John's work, even when it's uh, when it's cryptic, isn't it? Even when he's, yeah. we looked at one of the songs he does in this is "Dig a Pony," and he's, it's uh, still some of those, some of the lines in that are are self-reflective. Yeah. Um, even in the chorus when he's singing, "All I Want Is You," that's obvious what that is. Yeah. Um. So you know, there's um. He betrays himself um, even unsuspectingly, I think, when he's trying to be obscure. So, hey, this is Tim for Bad Counsel. You want some good counsel? Keep listening to the smooth, dulcet tones of Marv on Pods Like Us. (laughs) After the Beatles ended and he went to the solo career, Yoko pushed him more to that, though, didn't she? She was saying to him, Make it more self-referential and about yourself, and stop with the hiding behind metaphor and just say what you what you want to say. Yeah, yeah. Which I think that one of the other podcasts said is that there's a that's a that's not a bottomless well, is it? It's just and and the amount of, again, it's a kind of it's a kind of a a trope, isn't it? I think that a lot of um, a lot of acts in there, maybe their third album or something, becomes um, about you know what it's like to be famous. Look at look at Pink Floyd. Yeah, <laughs> you know they they run out of ideas and they start actually talking about what it's like to be them. Um, yep, and then they do that repeatedly. So. Yeah. Dark, Dark Side a, of the Moon is about them, and and uh, wish you wish, were here, here. That's about them. Animals the is about them, and the wall is about them. Yeah. And the final cut repeats the same thing again. Yes. So, yeah. So yeah, you 
you begin begin to get the sound of a barrel being scraped. So um, I think even he, he realised that when he tried to do something more sort of uh, overtly political. But because because I'm I'm pretty sure that the politics side of everything came from John. Yeah, uh, that that wasn't political statements weren't necessarily what Yoko was known for. She was known for um, those sort of whimsical artistic statements. Um, but this, a song like Revolution was written before before he even met Yoko, so he was dipping his toe in that in that particular pond um, before he met her. But um, she, it was her influence that made it more um whimsical events like the bedding and planting acorns and all of that kind of thing yeah she was more of an ideas person so a lot, a lot of the things that she would come up with the slogans would be based on uh, the politics of the time and there's there's no doubt in that she, you know she probably had the same leanings but not but she would always think of it in the case of Oh, I'll come up with a phrase like, you know, give people like, um, you know, make love, not war and things like that. They would be oh. just, well, I'm trying war to think. over if you war want is over it. if is, you want yeah. it. That's the one I'm thinking, yeah. Yeah. So that is that's, hers, that's, but it's just that, much. but that is just something that is of its time that she thought, yep. Whereas I don't think that she could probably keep an entire, I don't think she could probably write an entire song around that lyric i'm not sure do you, do you know what i mean i think she's got that mm. one line and then it's a bit like the middle eight from paul's live and let die with with linda where she's written a, a great uh, you know middle eight but i don't think she could have written in the entirety of live and let die well yeah it, it's uh pauses for courses i was going to say i think yeah. really you know um that they're quite bit I quite like sort of uh, 1968 John and Yoko. Those some of those mm. interviews in my uh, in my episode one are quite they're quite funny and they're quite quirky. Now, the one that yeah. the one that tickles me the most in that is um, Yoko's talking about something quite intellectual about paper, and she she likes a so a heavy weight of paper that. I forget what, what she's making it a metaphor for. But John feels the need to chip in and he goes, uh, and you can only fold it eight times. <laughs> and it's like, it's the only thing he knows about paper. Oh, and he's like, dear. what's that got to do with anything? But he, th- he felt he had to say something. <laughs> it's like she was rambling and he was trying to bring the conversation back. Yeah, really. no, it was, oh, I, I felt like he thought he hadn't said something for a little while, so he thought he was well, yeah. or something. <laughs> Oh, yeah, dear. So, wow, we've been we've been waxing about this, haven't we? So, uh, I, I told you I waffle. I'm fine with that. Everyone I likes can't a good keep, waffle. I can't keep it tidy. That's why I have to write everything down. I couldn't. Um, I couldn't sit and do. And I, and I can sense when people are doing podcast recordings and they're doing it kind of just off of very rough notes. Um, and I, I, I would be so, so rambling if i did that i have to be quite scripted so uh that's yeah. a late that's a later that's question thanks giving a, giving away my secrets there but even when i'm doing a, a commentary it's it is scripted i'm not 
I'm not going, oh, I've just done. Well, there are occasional ones. I do inserts where I'm okay. editing and I've gone, oh, I've missed something. And those those aren't scripted, but uh, the, the rest of it is. Otherwise, you know, I'll, I'll just meander along. I do do pickups occasionally with people. If I'll, I'll be listening in editing or, or listening back to a show and I think, oh, I could have asked them that. And then I'll contact them occasionally. Go, do, do you just mind a quick half an hour? It's smoke and mirrors, isn't it? You know? So people don't know what goes into these things, honestly. They don't. Oh, God. Who, who of us did before we started this? Who knew yeah. what was it? What was involved in making a podcast, really? Yeah. Well, I, no, I didn't. Um, I mean, so, so I tell you how I got this. This came about, really. Okay. Um, is uh, I mean, it became a podcast idea dur- during lockdown. Um, but initially, I was doing, I was doing some writing, trying to whether it was going to turn into anything I published or anything. But I was doing a kind of a, a kind of a, a almost like an Agatha Christie kind of thing about what happened to Paul's bass, okay, um, during these sessions. So, and that's when I started listening through the tapes. But then I realised if you're trying to write the Beatles, they they talk in a very distinct way. And they've each got their own kind of voice. And it's not, there's a, there's an awful lot of cliched Beatles impressions, of, of which I do many. <laughs> um, and, uh, but to find their voice, I really needed to listen through the whole thing. And I thought, if I need to do research, why don't I start making notes? And then I'll, from that, it became, well, why don't I share that? Yeah. So um, that's where it came from. It was it was a sort of a joining the dots from there to there to there, and and in the end out, out comes this. Um, so, as I say, it is it is scripted, and but I like to have uh, a format that's sort of recognisable, um, and that's kind of from probably episodes two and three. That's probably established itself. Um, which is like you do uh, a section of the audio and you go through it and you try not to make it because <laughs> you could parody this. You could say, um, I'm going to have a cup of tea. That's John having a cup of tea. <laughs> two sugars. Yeah. He's having two sugars in his tea. So it could, you could parody it like that. I'm trying not to make it that obvious, but where you can't clearly hear things, I'll um, I'll interpret them more. I'll summarise what's actually happening because it isn't always obvious. They're talking about things, but you they're doing something at the same time. Um, John so, notices Paul's playing the piano. Are you playing the yes. piano, Paul? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's a danger of it becoming that. Um, I hope it doesn't. Um, I've I've begun to to leave longer sections and then discuss in a longer chunk as as i go through so that it's not quite as repetitive and i'm not interrupting so much um but i think it, it's but, i think it's fascinating because you'll 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 pick up on something uh, on the tapes and then you'll do a deep dive into that specific person or yes. that specific song or the effect that, that they're the looking aim, for yeah, and whatever yeah. and i think that that's that's fascinating yeah the the aim was to have maybe two or three like feature parts to it where you you basically write it's a sidebar like in a book, isn't it? You know, um, 
where you can talk about the history of it. And I noticed in the, the Get Back book, they do something like that. They have to explain what they're talking about. So they've, they've used sort of brackets and italics to this person is blah, 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 producer of whatever. Um, so the, they, they can, you know, put a context to it. Um, and also, yeah, it's good to know what else is going on in the world and, and what, what other music is circulating and all of that. And, and the equipment's interesting to me because I'm a, you know, a, a musical nerd. So I, I um, yeah, I really enjoy, I, I can give you a little spoiler here that um, they're, again, uh, well, if you haven't heard the series, the, the, the one of the first things that I noticed that hadn't been mentioned in any of the books is Paul's bass being strung right-handed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you did. That's true. Which is, well, I suppose people just went past it, but he's a, he's a left-handed player. Why would his bass be strung the wrong way? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because it sets sets in motion a chain of events, a chain of events that leads to, to him losing his first base. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because he has to swap it out while the other one's being restrung. He clearly likes, the. Uh, I'm listening to the sixth now, and he clearly likes playing the, the 1963 model better than the old one because he doesn't stop noodling away on it for, for much of the first sort of half of... Um, the day on the sixth, as soon as he picks it up, he's um, he's playing very fast runs on that. So it's obviously, I think it's easier to play or or feels more comfortable or whatever, or more familiar even. But uh, yeah, he's uh, he puts that puts that 1961 bass down to um, to switch the piano to play Maxwell Silverhammer, and uh, it's never seen again. It's, it's interesting that because yes, yeah, so he'll, he'll play the '63 Hofner, uh, which he says is a better guitar, better bass than the than the the pre the first model that he had. But but um, he doesn't play the Rick. No, uh, the Rick and Backer, He doesn't play it that. Might be to do with size. I don't know. Maybe because um, uh, <clears throat> I'm actually a bass player myself but i'm not a, not a huge chap and um uh, if you're if you're singing the way you've got to stand with your arms that far apart it's kind of uncomfortable in a way mm-hmm. um so it could be that or it could just be it's part of the image i mean you did get the impression that they did this stripping back of the instruments and eventually Paul does that with the Rickenbacker as well, doesn't he? But um, it was almost that was they're going to be this sort of stage look. They had uh, the maple drum kit and they'd all strip the finish off their guitars. Um, it's it's a thought. But Paul seems to have gone, gone with the violin bass because that's how people know him, I think. Or it's just he's light and comfortable. To pull the curtain away, I'm just looking over at my friend uh, Jazz at the moment. Oh, very nice. So, um, I, I don't know why I'm even bothering to ask this question. So, why why this subject? You know, because so for people listening, Winter of Discontent 
Uh, Nick is working through what are called the Nagra reels. Which yeah, we didn't. We didn't explain that. We didn't explain start, it, did we? we? No. You so, have to do an introduction. So, so what, <laughs> what 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 happened was when they were um, they recorded. They were recording, filming themselves going through these sessions uh, about six to eight weeks after they'd finished the White Album. Um, and those sessions were all recorded, but they were recorded in a film studio, which was very cold. It was, um, it started on the 2nd of January after New Year's Day, I believe. And mm-hmm. I think it's 30, it is 30 days, isn't it? I, I remember that because. I remember I used to <clears throat> have the bootleg CD set of that's called 30 Days, uh, which yeah, is inclusively, yeah, which is technically the Nagra reels, but is um, it? yeah, yeah, I, sort I, of, yeah. I've got a I've got a big box of discs that I'm working through, and yeah. because you can physically see how many there are, it's quite as you realise how big a task you're on, you know. Absolutely, um, but uh, yeah, it's that that's the story of it that they. Um, They'd announced that they were going to be playing live shows in November, I think, something like that. But I think John's drug bust managed to put the mockers on that. Yes. Yep. Um, so they didn't really get themselves um, back together until January. And then um, from that point, it, it's it's peculiar that they hadn't worked, sat down and worked out what, what their plan was. They... They invested, you know, recruited a film crew, a sound engineer. They've got all these people on the payroll uh, and no clear idea of where they're going. Yeah. And the wrong hours as well. Yeah. Well, they weren't going to pay night rate, were they? <laughs> because trying to get musicians to work from a nine, nine, in a nine-to-five setting will not work. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just say that. That's not going to work. <laughs> they, they struggle. Um, yeah, they do struggle getting in. I think... I think if Paul travelled on public transport, I know it's the let the, um, the new Get Back book says he did. Um, he only did it the first day because on the second day, you'll hear George saying, oh, I saw some guys looking at your car. Yeah. So he drove in that day. So that that would have that would have probably been the Aston then that he had at that, that point. That was the Aston, yeah, because yeah. Um, Kevin Harrington said he used to get a lift in. So, okay. um so yeah, that that's another one of those little myths that. But Paul did travel places by um, um, by public transport. Um, he used to get the bus in, in St John's Wood, um, and her name's. I'm just racking my brain for her name. Um, uh, Miss Odell, I've forgotten her um, first name. Oh yes, yeah. Um, used to get the bus with him. So. Um, yeah, it was a uh, it was known for him to use public transport, but I don't believe in in this particularly this period he was doing that because he started to arrive early from uh, after the first day. G'day, g'day. This is Matty C from the Astros Fantasy Football Podcast, way down in Australia, and we love getting to listen to Marv meet new podcasters from all over the world here on the Pods Like Us podcast. You've already explained why you've picked this subject, because you you start you've explained how initially you were looking at the the story of the the missing base, and that that led to you going into this in more detail. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping I might uncover it. You know, I don't think I will. 
Oh, let's let's hope so. One of these days, I want you to actually find the original. I'm quite enjoying the detective work, though. Of it. I think that's it's a fascinating part of the whole thing. So pr- from there, you are basically dissecting the the sessions uh, bit by bit. So you will you will listen to the uh, the tapes, and then you'll respond accordingly. Like I said earlier, you'll you'll pull out of that and then describe in detail certain areas like people who are involved. So you've you've gone into the histories of uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg, uh, Glyn Johns, and these mm-hmm. other people who are involved. I think that's a good description. Yes, that is. Yeah, yeah. I give sort of personal histories of those um, those people. Um, I do some song analysis. Um, Equipment uh, analysis and uh, yeah, what what because they're all using um, they've had a whole new load of new equipment delivered. Um, so that's to me that at least that's interesting um, because it's part of part of what makes them sound the way they do. Yeah, well, they've got so, new amplifiers to get used to as well, haven't they? Brand new ones, yeah. Which is why the early early the first couple of days the, the guitars sound pretty uh, crappy. Really, it takes them a little while to settle in. Yeah, because they're not used to the controls on those amplifiers and how they work. Exactly. Yeah. So um, here's here's a little uh, nugget. Okay, which I think is interesting. It's um, it's just something I thought of then when we're talking about the the amplifiers. When you see the uh, we and you'll see it again in the get back documentary when it's out when they the police arrive yeah um spoiler alert when the police arrive when they're playing the rooftop concert um the the received sort of wisdom is that the amps are cut but that's not actually the case because what george is doing when he reaches behind the amp he's not switching it back on he's turning the tremolo setting up um what's the amps haven't cut off what's happened is which is quite funny in a way that John's seen three policemen arrive at the top of the stairs and he's only just had a drugs bust, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> so he immediately stops playing. <laughs> he kind of like, Oh crap. <laughs> um, so uh, that's, that's what's really happened there. They like to tell it that the amps were cut, but, but as you know, with valve amplifiers, you can't just pull the power on them. They don't come back to life that no. quickly. No. Um, so it's just it's just the fact that they, that John saw the police and panicked. Yeah. So there, yeah, that's my little little bit of insight. Yeah, you have to treat to uh, valve amplifiers with a lot of respect, people. Yes, yeah. especially those. That was, um, well, you say, 80, 80 that watts from a valve amplifier is. Well, uh, you've been in a room with um, hundred watt ampl- amplifiers and. <laughs> There are four tilt. It's 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 the loudest thing you've ever heard in your life. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow. So actually, we'll get we'll get to this bit. Is so it's something that I'm I th- I'm not sure if it's just me that thinks this, but I've always wondered if a lot of people not in the know about the Beatles or just like you know know of the Beatles and have a sort of like passing interest. I'm wondering if they misunderstand the whole let it be situation um, because of the fact that 
it was there was such a long gestational period between the actual sessions to the album coming out of Let It Be Itself. Mm. I think people get the wrong impression that it's the last album, and that's why they thought that situations were difficult and people were, you know, because they think of it as the album that broke the Beatles. <laughs> In truth, it took took over a year between them finishing the sessions to the album coming out, during which time they'd recorded an entire album. Yes, yeah. I mean, the way it was edited originally as a film, it, it's kind of, it, it's very much influenced by the fact that the band are now split up. So that's what they focused on. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the notes that they were given to Michael Lindsay Hogg, the director in return, you know, to tell him, I think they were based on their own thoughts that 14 months, well, 13, 14 months later, how they were at that time, as opposed to yeah. if the film had been done a year earlier, it would have been completely different. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, yeah, had they had they released it pretty much straight away, you'd get probably the story that you're going to get looking at that trailer, which is it's a will they won't they story of will they get onto a stage and make a performance. Yeah, that's that's basically what the tale that they're telling, you know. Um, and there's there's drama and setbacks along the way, and and to an extent that's that was the kind of story that Michael Lindsay Hogg was trying to tell. Um, but the way it was, I think it was quite, maybe the original cut was a bit more easy to follow. Um, it just, it, it, it didn't really tell a story, did it? The original film, it was just, a um, the thing that it's lacking and you realize it now looking at the, the trailer is that here I am with however many, nearly 80 hours of, um, audio. Yeah. That he didn't use any of that as a voiceover for for any of the to join all the scenes together to make it make sense, and that seems like a a glaring omission um, because wow. it, the, there isn't really the 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 film in itself doesn't make a lot of sense, um, but it ends on a high with the the rooftop. Yeah, yeah. But, but the rest of the time they appear to be just moping around. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but then again, we've all we've all been in bands where you, you have a rehearsal and you're there for three hours, and one hour is spent actually doing the music, and the other two hours is spent chatting about what you've watched on television or films that you've seen. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the sources for um, for anyone who's interested in this as well, but one of the sources for me is Doug Sulpey's book, which is called "Drugs, Divorce, and the Slipping Image," um, which is the first real serious analysis of all these audio tapes but and it's not necessarily a fault but he looks at it from a point of view of, of these li listening to these uh rehearsals as if they're performances and then he critiques them as being you know um poor quality or unenthusiastic or whatever um but he's missing the point rehearsals are rehearsals they're not really meant to be heard by the likes of you and i um and and as you'll know, the the first four or five times you have a go at a song, it's a car crash. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and then suddenly everyone remembers what they're doing and it all comes together. But yeah, it's uh yeah, it can be even if you 
I mean, and and they're not even learning other people's songs. They're they're making them up from scratch. Yeah. So they're writing the song the night before or something, and then they'll come in the next day and start playing it. Yeah. And so then, they'll run through it. Yeah. And then, I mean, half of the, I mean, one thing that they noted about themselves, because if you imagine, they would never have actually had to do this before. No. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have sat down and learn a, a whole body of material when they were talking about 14 songs or something. That was the number they had in their head, wasn't it? Um, from scratch, before they've even committed them to tape, they're just, you know, they have to go over and over and over them and, and make arrangement ideas and develop them. They've never done that. They might have done it with one or two songs when they're out in a studio session and they get brought one in. But they wouldn't sit there and work through a huge, a large chunk of material. So they're no. setting themselves a, a, a task they've never had to had to try and do before. Um, and and they haven't established a working method for it. And that's where the really where it starts to unravel. No, because the earlier earlier period. So with Please Please Me album, those songs would already have been there that they played, even the original songs. I mean, you know, like uh, I Saw Her Standing There, that would have been from a year or two earlier. There were all songs that they're all used to. So they could actually go in and then record it in one session because they already knew those songs. On Please Please Me, you've got eight originals, haven't you? Yeah. Four of which are the A's and B sides of the singles, which yeah. leaves four. I saw her standing there. They were playing at Hamburg. So they, and yeah. Ask me why was the other one they did, but um, so that leaves three relatively fresh new songs. Yeah, but now they're trying to do in a basically a sort of two week, three week period. Um, I mean, at one point they say twenty or thirty songs, don't they? Which is crazy. Yeah, it is, and and it's more sophisticated now. You know, they're, they're making more complex arrangements. Rock and roll has evolved. Yeah. If you look at the the arrangements on Hard Day's Night, for instance, um, George's guitar parts on on there, he's just basically just strumming along, isn't he? Through through the majority of the songs, yeah, uh, it's being yeah. it's being led by John's acoustic, and he's basically just what would you call it, comping, wouldn't you, in the jazz term? Yes, he's yeah. he's basically outlining the chords. There's there's not a lot of songs that are more technical than that. Um, so, but by 1969, they've got a, they've got a, the games, the bar's been raised quite a bit. Of what what you need to be putting into a, a successful song. Hey, it's the boys from Saw Spoken, and we are so glad that you are listening to our new friend, Marv, and his podcast, Pods Like Us. Yeah, we were recently on the show for a couple of episodes, and we really enjoyed it. And if you'd like to catch a little bit more of us with all the raunchiness and sauce-based humor that you're used to, feel free to check us out on our show. But in the meantime, keep enjoying Pods Like Us with Marv. We enjoyed talking with Marv as much as we hope you enjoy listening to him. Now back to the show. But they're pushing themselves in a way there because so you've got you've got the please please me and then by the time they get to like Beatles for sale or somewhere like that, the albums aren't being made so quickly as they were 
So each time that they make a new album, they've got longer to make the album, essentially. Yeah. So yeah. they're not going in with a large bunch of like things that they've not done. They're, they're taking time over those songs. I mean, when, when you get to things like Sgt. Pepper's, you've got ridiculous length of periods where you'll have a song that's there and then two months later, three months later, they'll think, oh, do you know what? I'll just add a whistle to this song or I'll add this to that song, you know, so you haven't got that. It's almost an impossible thing in a way where they're they're trying to go back to something that almost didn't really happen. They never had that period where they would suddenly have to have those songs, you know, yeah. That's the first brick wall they've run into, to be honest. Um, the what the their working method is to learn the arrangement of the song. Yeah. Now, in even the previous year, it was quite easy for them to get the rhythm part for the song, the drums, the bass, and a guitar or a piano, and record that. You've got the whole yeah. structure of the song there. Now we can add an orchestra or the lead guitar or lots of backing vocals and all of that. But now they've got to do everything at once. Yeah. So what's holding them back quite early on and probably leads to Paul's frustration with George is they have to wait for George to work out his part, which means going over the song over and over and over again until he gets something. Yeah. So they haven't had to do that before. Well, not not for an awful long time and probably not at all. They'll They'll have worked out a song structure recorded it and then listened back to the tape and he could work out a part yeah but now they're driving themselves a little bit mad and it's taking time and it's becoming frustrating so uh yeah that and there'll be lots of that some uh, half of the problem i think then is that paul is rushing george by suggesting do this yeah and then of course that causes resentment with george because sometimes he has he has ideas um, that get ridden over, you know. Um, I mean, for instance, as they're going through, just before they have the argument on the 6th, um, in Don't Let Me Down, Paul is trying to think, in the second verse of the I'm in love for a first time verse, Paul is trying to do an answering vocal of some kind. He can't think what it is yet. But yeah. he pushes and pushes this idea. And at one point, George goes, why don't we just play something like the bass and the guitar together? Yeah. And Paul ignores him. And that's exactly what they settle on in the end. It is. So but they you, waste yeah. all that time. Yeah. yeah. It's like you've, you've mentioned, you mentioned before about other times where George will do something and they'll go away from that. And eventually that is actually what they end up doing. Yeah. A lot of the it's time. Like, like your wife will often tell you. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. The, 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 the wife, the wife is always right. <laughs> You've just come back to me with the idea I gave you an hour ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, my my, my mum used to say that uh, that my stepdad she used to do this thing where she would she used to say that eventually he would do what she what she ended up suggesting because she she'd turn it around and make it think that he'd thought it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, maybe George should have tried that approach. But he does so, yeah, he sows the seed. In fact, uh, there is another example of that where um, where Paul finally comes up with an idea. That, at the end of the – uh, I kind of edited it around that, but I can't remember what it was that, that George makes a suggestion right at the start. 
Was it, no, was it's it? the other way around, I think. I think Paul makes the suggestion. It's the other way around. The the lead-ins to all things must pass, which aren't in a normal um, sort of rhythm. They're, okay. in a, they're in an odd-length meter, so Ringo can't drum through it. And That's I think true. Paul says right at the start, he says, you play that bit by yourself. And they go, endlessly trying to fix it. Until George goes, maybe I'll just play that bit by myself, you know. And it's yep. so they they're equally guilty of doing that. They they don't really listen to each other. But yeah, I I kind of feel for him because I think this is after being cut loose for a couple of months. This is like going to spend Christmas with your parents, and you have to the the old hierarchy returns, doesn't it? <laughs> the old pecking order. I think. So, I think that's something that, that carried on with Paul, though, for a long while, because I get the impression that he was like that with Wings, and that's probably what infuriated people like Henry McCulloch. Where I, Paul I would, hear that, yes. Where yeah. Paul would, where, where, where Henry would be there, and he used to be someone who used to, uh, he would work on things, and Paul would just say, oh, God, just do this, and then he'd show, it to, show Henry what to do, and I think that Paul carried on with that for quite a while definitely into the solo era when, you know, as soon as he went out of that and they went into like tug of war, he was, I think he allowed people to do what they were mm. known for doing. And that's the fact that they were there in the first place. Whereas during the wings period, I think Paul carried on with that almost um, telling people how this song should sound and what this part should sound like. But if you I'd say if you listen to the way that he works on those tapes, it's it's very efficient the way that he does that. Yeah. Even though it's quite dominating, he he can he just basically takes you through the song from start to finish, and he knows everything that he wants to do in his head. Mm. So we say right, and the drums do this at this point, and then he sings the next line. He goes, then you played this, and then you know. Um, why don't you just play play a bit of guitar over that part and then oh right okay now we do a bit where it slows down and all of these kind of things he um, but he steers them through and everyone he's, he teaches the band all at the same time yeah and we spend an awful lot, lot of episodes on all things must pass where George teaches everybody one at a time which, yes yeah. which is quite laborious um, yeah but yeah, Joe, uh, the the trouble, the way Paul works is he he he's efficient and he gets things done. Yeah. But he tramples on everyone's creativity. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but in saying that, though, at the same time, uh, I'm about to, you know, a lot of us do this. I'm about to quash the uh, the, the well known saying about Ringo Starr with his drums. You know, that that's a load of crap, Ringo. Fantastic drummer. He was the right drummer for the Beatles. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm about to say that the, the thing is that Paul, he, he needed Ringo in a way because Ringo was a damn sight better, better drummer even than Paul is now because Ringo was able to do things that Paul, even himself, he will say, I can't do that. He, he will admit to certain things that he can't do because he can't do he can't do a swing beat that well. He's, he's actually said that, whereas Ringo is an incredible swing player and has a, has a great feel great to feel. that. Yeah, but it um, is the feel. Yeah. It is the feel. You you, um, you could see it in the playbacks to 
um, get back, even in that sneak peek, something I noticed, everyone in the control room when Get Back's playing and everyone's hearing this and it's the rhythm of it. Yeah. And and I've I've been at a jam where someone's called that song out and it the song runs away with you. You need someone it needs to be such a grounded, like a real swinging feel to that kind of marching rhythm. Um that if you try and do it, it doesn't work. So uh, yeah. it, that whole song is held together by that by that feel of that drum pattern. Yeah, because there's a lot of Beatles songs where you'll listen to them and you'll think you'll think in terms of the drums. And if, if 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 Ringo wasn't such a good drummer, you wouldn't have that. So you wouldn't be think you wouldn't listen to Rain and think, oh, the drums in Rain or the drums in Ticket to Ride. If he didn't have that ability as a drummer, that would not jump out to you. Yeah, it's all about it's all about context, isn't it? I mean, if if you listen to his contemporaries when they started, um, and Chris Curtis in the Searchers or. Um, uh, who was it in the um, pacemakers? <laughs> Freddie Marsden in the pacemakers, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. Um, yeah, and Jerry, all those guys, they've all got a yeah. kind of they've all got a kind of jazz influence. And the same with Charlie Watts, even God rest yeah. his soul. Yeah. Is they 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 play a kind of a very kind of light style, but it's very loose. Um, and what you got with Ringo was that he was a big hitter. If you see the things like the Washington concert. Um, how he's I was looking at um, I think it was on that might have been on that uh, thing I watched this morning I watched Beatles Complete this morning and um, he's uh, they play Please Please Me on there and when he goes to there's a cha-cha section in the middle and uh, there's a woman in the crowd drumming along you know <laughs> waving her arms about <laughs> because it, it's um, it the way he played was it's very modern. It's it's a very like with the dampening and the way that he tuned his drums and everything. This is kind of hard but very clear, crisp kind of a sound. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know that with the emphasis on the the, the thud of the bass drum and all of that, and the way it was recorded, he did a lot for the the sound of the instrument. He he's not by any means, you know. Um, or Jeff Picaro or anything super technical like that. But he, that's not the point. That was not what it was there for. No. I mean, there's a reason why he was friends with people like Keith Moon and John Bonham, because they looked up to him and they 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 were inspired by that style of drumming that, that Ringo was using. Yeah, it's 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 just cleaner and clearer. There, there was the, a lot of the sort of the... The jazz stuff, the loose stuff, right? it's hard to explain, but a lot of that, everything on the ride symbols and, um, um, yeah, that that solidity of his playing, I think, is was very influential. Yeah. Do Do you think that um, I'm coming to this one now about the amount of material that George had? Do you think that was something that was could slightly have irritated John perhaps because, you know, John was there and expected to suddenly six to eight weeks after the white album, this is suddenly expected to have um, two third or a third of an album written already at least. 
Mm. And, and John, you know, he, he used to, I think Paul used to write quicker than, than, than John. I think Paul. You, you know, can see, well, you can see it with Paul though. The, the, yeah. It's there's stuff flowing out of him the whole time that you're there. Yeah. Um, I'm just getting to, um, he's just brought in over that first weekend. He's come up with carry that weight, but he's only got the chorus. Yeah. Um, and he's suggesting there's a song for Ringo, but as he sits at the piano and he bangs out that, he then drifts into one version of a verse and then he, he stops and then he they, they have a chat about something else and he comes back and starts getting, and then he does a completely different idea for a verse and it's just pouring out of him ideas. Yes. Um, John was a more, if you listen to the way that, that John demoed, he, he, he worked from a concept or an idea, a subject, yeah, or all the words, and worked backwards from there. And he kind of almost forced the tunes out. The, the, the music didn't flow as, as naturally with him. So you would often get recognisable words, but to a different tune on some of his demos because he's trying them out for science. Yeah. Um, and I think at this point, though, he's he's involved in his kind of art stuff with Yoko, isn't he? And he's taken his eye off the ball a bit. So eight weeks isn't – he'd been in India and written all of that material in a roughly about the same period in the previous year. Um, and that's probably the last really productive period of his whole life, actually. Um, Except for the last weekend. That, well, yeah, yeah, to a degree. Yeah, well, I said one like concerted, yeah, you know, 16, 18, whatever tunes just came out of him. Um, but he's got very little, um, because I don't think he's been doing putting the work in. It's as simple as that. No, you know, and, and I think maybe this whole. Uh, film idea was kind of dropped on him when he wasn't ready. Maybe, maybe that infamous quote where he said Paul would phone up and say, "I've got my ten songs." Um, we start on Tuesday, and he'd be like, "Hold on a minute, yeah. <laughs> I've got I've got to write something." But he does yeah. waste time. I mean, he had the whole weekend after the my, the series at the moment finishes on the Friday. He'll have that whole weekend to have come up with something else, and he hasn't. Um, so. He's, he's just, he's preoccupied, I think. Yeah, so perhaps there's a bit of irritation there with John, yes. you know, because, because George is there with all this material and Paul is there with all of this material and John's exactly. there with nothing. But I think George, to an extent, undermines himself, whether he can, we, we, we haven't grown up with those guys, so we can't, we're not picking up the same... Our antenna isn't picking up the same cues that maybe he is about their interest in his his material, but he he loses. He spent all that time on all things must pass on Friday, yeah. and then he starts to bring in new material again on the f- following day, like he's changed his mind, and he does that a lot. He just, I don't know, he he doesn't seem to. Um, to have the commitment. He doesn't have the forceful personality that Paul has to push everybody through all the changes in the song to learn it. So yeah. I mean, it's, um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's not in his nature to be that. He, he's kind of passive aggressive in a way, you know, he, it would be 
simpler if he just said what he wanted. This is Dave of Live Life Loud, the Decibolic Podcast, and you're listening to Pods Like Us with Marv. It's a position that he's got used to over the years of being the third wheel, shall we say. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't think he has yet has confidence in his own material, and there's some there's some wonderful new songs coming in, in there. Yeah, but they, they come um, out with a nasty comment about one of his songs, there, don't they? I think is that the um, "I Mean Mine" when he brings that in, or, so or is it the, about? Didn't they say something about was was the song of his "Window Window" or something where they were taking the Mickey out of that song or something? Oh, I is that no, during these sessions or is that during another know. session? I don't know. I haven't come across that. I am I am pretty much going through this um, at the same pace as everybody else. Okay, so but that's that's the kind of intention of it um and that that leads me down blind alleys sometimes but i've, I've kind of made up my mind that I'll, I'll relentlessly just keep going forward so if i make if i make an assumption and make a mistake i just correct it when i find out about it uh oh yeah because so, you, you've done that already where you've uh, on one of your shows you'll you begin the show by explaining where you, you've you've realized something from a previous episode that you weren't yeah, I didn't quite got it right. So then you'll make that correction in a later episode. Yeah, yeah. I, I figured rather than I could go round and round in circles, taking things down and re-editing them and all that kind of stuff. Um, or I'll, I'll um, sometimes I've, I've not checked myself. You know, you you think you know everything in this story, and 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 sometimes it's the truth is is different to what you assumed. Um, and you'll discover that later and think, I relied too much on my memory on that one. Um, but yeah, the um, where were we going with that? <laughs> <laughs> we started off with George's uh, uh, wealth of material, weren't we? But yeah, they were, um, yeah, so I haven't, I haven't got to them doing that. I know that John has, has a sort of um excuses himself from performing I Me Mine when they do that. He doesn't like that one at all. No. Which must be quite demoralising. But um, I've I've been in um, in kind of sort of creative partnerships with people where yep. you were able to be honest like that. So I yes. don't, I don't yep. think that's necessarily a bad thing and you shouldn't look at it like that. It's not a democracy it's a meritocracy isn't it and and so if you're you make a suggestion and someone doesn't like it they should just say yeah absolutely you know? and yeah. so and that's the same with with them it, that that they're thinking of the the ultimate the ultimate goal which is to make you know to make successful commercial material so yeah. And I've done that. I've spent ages trying to trying to write a song, and someone's come in and said, "Well, I, I didn't like that one, but I like this one." And you're like, "Oh, well, I spent ages on that." But yeah, but but then I, but I, I I've, I've normally gone back and reworked it to make it something to to, to then bring back to them in a in a different way to to yeah. a band. If and you then believe we've in done, it, we've done it that way before, and they've said exactly. You know, now that you've changed this, this, and this, I actually like this a lot better, and it works better. Exactly. So, so that's the creative process. I don't think there's any any harm in 
in the, I mean, he, uh, on the sixth, George is coming in with hear me, Lord. No one's interested in that. No, he has several goes at trying to play that, and everyone's talking over him. So he he's not um, he's not as as able to push push himself forward. I mean, Paul is the best one at that. I mean, if if it have put if it have pushed it further, the uh, not that the uh, all things must pass because they were getting into the song. Yeah. Uh, if it had pushed that a bit further, we might likely have had a Beatles album called All Things Must Pass. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's quite possible. I mean, uh, uh, they've they've got they've got the thing worked out. I think he he there's a few. It's his own lack of confidence in that because he fiddles about with the guitar for a great long period on that as well because he can't doesn't like the guitar sound. Yeah, which isn't the most pressing concern at the moment when you're trying to teach your bandmates the song. But yep. there's some, there's a bit of self-confidence issue there that he's trying to distract himself a little bit or change the subject. Oh, it's, oh, it's this guitar. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, it's interesting the psychology of that really. The, the problem that they've got straight away with that is the fact that if they'd have lost the whole if they'd have forgotten the whole idea of it being based upon leading up to a concert format, that that's that's the one thing that caused a problem because it, that song works better with a rhythm guitar that's acoustic, but because they were looking towards it being a, for a live performance, acoustics wouldn't work in a live performance as well back in those days. Whereas if they were thinking in terms of it just being for a potential album, then they could have just carried on working with the song with the acoustic as the rhythm instrument and going at it from that angle. It would have worked yeah. better and they could have carried on with the song and yeah, added yeah, it on think, the album. Yeah, yeah, it was that was an interesting thing that you um you overhear John saying in in the tapes is that um he's just been on the um, Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus recording. And they play, I think there's no expectations they play on acoustic. Yep. And what he said is they couldn't get it to work through the, the the PA in the studio. So they ended up recording it just to mics and the audience couldn't really hear it. Yeah. So um, so that was the compromise. So, And that was the situation when they do try and try and mic up George's uh, guitar. He ends up getting a, a shock off the mic, doesn't he? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's irritating in a way because a couple of years later, when you'd have concert for Bangladesh, they were able to actually have acoustic instruments heard by the audience. So they yeah. only, it was only a couple of years later when you actually had the equipment to be able to do that. Yeah, that um, the PA they're using at the moment, that uh, they're using like a Fender PA, and and where you can hear sometimes because the what's going into the feed is the is the mics for the for the soundtrack it's not the it's not the mics going through the pa system and coming back it's just a mic there's two mics taped together and one's going directly into the tape so you hear a nice clean sound but on those occasions where you get one of the um uh what they call them um the tape operator or whatever making a a, a slate this is 15 tape four or whatever um, you can hear the band over the PA then, and it's distorted to death. Yeah. <laughs> the sound, and I think there's uh, there was circulating the YouTube of the um, 
the sound of the rooftop concert from the ground, and that is distorted as ha- as hell. It is. Yeah. That's um, that's the quality of of live sound at the time, and it was as you know, as you say, about to improve tremendously over the next couple of years. Absolutely. Hey, this is Greg at Bad Counsel. You want some good counsel? Keep listening to Pods Like Us with Marv and Down with Monarchy. <laughs> I mean, um, as, as, as far as I can tell and what I've read, uh, a lot of film sets, they would have a recorder on, on set because even for most, you know, even non-music related films, uh, you would not record the dialogue for them on the set. You would uh, you would uh, go into a studio and re-record yeah. and, and yeah. re-record it and loop it in the studio. And but so what would happen would be that a lot of film sets you'd have a recorder there with 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 a real tape on and just basic mics there to pick up everything. So that then in the studio when they went to re-record the audio. They would then they would play the audio as it is or as it was on the studio set for the actor or the, the voiceover person to to then copy essentially the phrasing and and how the line was delivered and that was the same equipment that you're listening to now on the Nagra reels, which is the rec- recording tapes that were for the uh, recording the film company. Is the film sound, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not. Now it seems, and it'd be interesting with the box set and everything, and the um, the documentary that's coming out is if there was any recordings made because they've had a load of new equipment delivered, um, uh, which Glyn Johns has uh, cobbled together from several sources. Because we're in Britain in 1969, and there just wasn't a a wealth of studios willing to give up tape tape recorders, um, regardless of who wanted them. You know, if they were using them for something else. Um, so he's got together what looks like um, consoles from Abbey Road, the mixing desks, the the preamps for the actual where the mics get plugged into come from IBC, and um, a tape recorder that's borrowed from the Beatles themselves. Yep. Um, so it'd be interesting to know if anything was ever recorded there at Twickenham, um, because it, because it's there from virtually the the third day all the equipment's arrived. Um, so it was all set up ready to go, and I wonder if he if he actually recorded anything in any kind of multi track form. Well, officially, I'm going to going to say this now because I've been saying it on some chat groups before. I think that after the Disney Plus show comes out, there will be a release musically for basically a soundtrack for that album, essentially. I mean, for that film, for that documentary. Yeah. That'd be interesting. So, so yeah, we've just done. We've just had um, "Let It Be" come out, which is "Let It Be" with the violins turned down a little bit. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, that isn't really connected to this Get Back project as such, is it? You know, it, no. it, it is. It's a result mm. of it, but it. But in in effect, is it's just the same the same album that it always was. 
Yeah. Um, but given a bit of a polish. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it'd be interesting if there is if there is other material there. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think at some point, say maybe in January, there'll I think there'll be a release musically that's related to the the Peter Jackson uh, documentary film. There are there are some, especially when they're running through old favourites at, at Twickenham. There's some lovely recordings there, things yeah. like Hitchhike and Your True Love. They do a Carl Perkins song, and they do it with such affection. Yes, and enthusiasm, and and that's and it's lovely to listen to. I mean, obviously, I have to chop all that out, <laughs> but uh, um, but yeah, it, it'd be nice to hear some of those polished up because it, it, it's got a tremendous atmosphere about it. You're sending me down, down another tangent now, Nick. You don't. You're oh, sorry, doing it again. I'll do that. Yep. yep. <laughs> uh, the Carl Perkins thing. I've always loved the fact that all four of them had such a great rapport with Carl and they, they, they all loved each other. Carl loved all four of those of them and they loved mm-hmm. him. I always thought that was, that was fantastic. Yeah. He's, uh, he, he uh, had the misfortune to be around um, at the same time as Elvis. I think that's, that was really his, yeah. Uh, yeah. His, his bad luck really. Cause he, he wasn't that kind of performer, but he was, um, uh, you know, a very a, a tremendous writer of, of mm. those songs. I used to have a, a, a vinyl collection of his as well, and there was a lot of brilliant recordings there. And again, yeah, there's, yeah. Some, there's yeah. some records that got such a wonderful feel to them, haven't they? That they have, and and the, yeah, there's something about his songs that are, you know. Um, oh dear me, there's one that Paul does a cover version of, and I can't remember which one it is. But he's talking about a real instant, real thing where he, uh, where Carl was was writing about, he would pick up his, um, he would pick up his girlfriend who ended up becoming his wife, on the back of his own uh, his own horse that he had, and then they would actually ride to the cinema and go and watch films, and he actually used to pick her up on his horse and take her there, and then. Um, I forgot what the name of the song is now. It's, that's not movie mag, is it? That's exactly what it is. It's movie mag. <laughs> and that is such a fantastic story that, you know, you'd think, really? You know, it, but it's actually a true story as well. And Good there's something God. about Carl's Carl's writing that is so incredible. You know, the the famous one would be the Blue Suede Shoes yes. song. Uh, you know, which which is unfortunate for Carl that he had that accident they had, and then Elvis released it first, even though Carl recorded it first. Yeah, uh, but it's again, it goes back to to the bit how much repertoire the Beatles had. Yeah, which was to say they were they were walking musical encyclopedias, weren't they? I mean, you, you listen to even how. how the faithful versions of, of Dylan tunes that George is picking out on the guitar. Yeah. Um, and he, he just seems to know them all perfectly. Uh, so they would, they were definite they weren't just obviously cre- creative musicians. They were tremendous music fans. Yeah. But, but then even there with, with, with Bob, you've got the, the one where, Bob had a great rapport with three of them, but there always used to be a sort of thing between him and John. 
Yeah, a rivalry. Uh, uh, yeah. And I dare say that put his nose out of joint that, that George had written with um, with Dylan when Jim yeah. could barely get a conversation. They were so guarded, weren't they, with each other? Yeah. They were, it's, it reminds me a little of the, the conversation they try and have with Peter Sellers when he walks on set and it's so stilted and all yeah. they can do is trade quips no one says hello how are you doing it's, you know busy how's the film going there's none of that everyone's yeah. trying to be funny and that's yeah. the same with john and um, dylan he's intimidated by him and he's trying yeah. to upstage him yeah and all john's doing is just quoting bits from the goons and things like that yeah yeah so it's, it's strange that he couldn't couldn't just communicate on a personal level What's up, everybody? This is Chris from the podcast Real Film Reviewed, and you're listening to Marv on Pods Like Us. So anyway, getting back to the show itself. So how do you actually record the show then and then edit it? And and then and then you've got the music for the show and the clips as well. I mean, how do you do all this stuff? It's very it's simpler than it sounds, to be honest with you. It's um it's two iPhones and um everything's mixed through garage band, so so some of the incidental music, and I'm, and I'm doing that, uh, someone actually gave me, my only one-star review I'd like to point out was that my um, he didn't like the music scores underneath the, um, the different sections. But part of the reason I do that is because there's a tremendous amount of background hiss, um, yep. and, which I don't mind. I don't mind a bit of hiss myself. No, I don't no. quite like lo-fi. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, uh, a lot of those, uh, some of that's library music, which I've got hold of. There's, there's some nice sort of bass lines and things that I've yeah. looped from the front of some um, some kind of jazzy elevator music. Um, and then there's some other ones, are just Apple loops that I've, I've pieced together. Granny um, music. Yeah, in it, <laughs> yes. Yeah, some of those, some of those songs, when they, they start with this funky bit of bass, and then, then when the when the the mellow sax comes in and the strings, you think, "Oh dear, <laughs> it wasn't what I expected it to be." But I'll keep that little bit. So yeah, I mean, it's because I I enjoy making music anyway. So I just sort of piece together some loops and uh, and chop out very much like the theme, which was which was a loop, and I just chopped out a bit of it that I like. It was a much longer piece. Um. And uh, yeah, and then I overlaid some um, bits of soundtrack from it. I thought so, it was. Yeah. Your, I thought you'd done it yourself. I did the music. Yeah, it's amazing what what's what you can do now with just a phone, isn't it? You know? Yeah, even the some of the yeah the bass lines which sound really nice. They're not they're not me. <laughs> so, so so when you I don't play it, I don't yeah. play with a plectrum. No, no. <laughs> Dear me. So, um, recording the show then, do you, do you do it in bits and bobs or do you do it all in one go and then edit accordingly? Yeah, it's, um, it's in sections. I, I, I work in, I mean, my initial thing will always be to, to go through the audio and find the part I want to listen to. And I try to make them at least a bit standalone. So if there's a, a theme, that's why they're all different links. If there's a, yeah. They, if they're diverted by, for instance, going back through some old songs from 
1960, then that's the theme of the show. So I'll I'll stay on on them till they finish doing that. Yeah. Um, and then I pick out the bits I want to talk about, and I do my research then and um, and write my features. Um, and sometimes they go they be, become uh, quite large things in themselves. Um, and I like to do it in a way that that tells the story, because as a, as I I may have said before, um, because the Beatles exist in their own universe, yeah, uh, they refer to themselves all the time. They even they even make jokes um, that refer to their own songs, you know. Or when um, here we go, Shyama Sundra, the uh, Hari Krishna. Yes, uh, guy who's uh, who's there on the first day, and John goes to Paul. Who's that funny little man? Which is a quote from a Hard Day's Night, and I think that's lovely that they 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 make jokes in jokes in their own world. So from there, obviously, you can you can tell a a broader story. You can tell more about their the times and more about their history, and and they prompt you to do it. Because because that's how they talk, so that that in itself is is interesting. Um, so yeah, I write two, two, three, or four features to go in to insert into the audio, um, and uh, and I always start with a, a recap. Yeah, um, just so that it, really so that you're not coming into it completely cold. You know what's happened before. And if you missed one or, you know, you don't want to go back through the previous series, you've got a rough idea what we're doing. I like the fact that when you start the show, you give people a, a suggestion as well for something, another podcast to listen to. Or I think you did a YouTube as well recently as well, where you yes. suggested a YouTube uh, channel. Yeah, I've got, um, I like, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a lover of podcasts and they keep me company. Um I go, I go running in my spare time, and they, they keep me company when I do that. Or if I'm doing any other job, a podcast is is great for, you know, if you want to wash the car or you want to um, uh, do a bit of work around the house or something. It's it's, per, it's perfect for that, um, and you can feel yourself, you know, learning new information. I'm a big fan of YouTube as well. I think yeah. there's some there's content on there that you can't. You're never going to encounter on on normal TV documentaries. People people have gone into uh, amazing detail on stuff. Um, I found um, the story. Funnily enough, is now coincidentally someone has come up with the same idea um, because there's a book called Finding Fretless, which I recommended as well, mm-hmm. um, which is about the Bartel fretless guitar that George got hold of. Yeah, and I found the story of that on YouTube. Um, <clears throat> because the trick seems to be with research, if anyone wants a tip, is to not actually look. You have to look at it from an angle. Um, you know, you, you can't say George Harrison's fretless guitar, you won't find anything. But if you start looking at um, what you thought you knew, I think it was, oh, I can't remember, it was claimed to be uh, produced by a different company, Hona. So I looked for it there, and then I started to find threads that led out to 
um, the Bartel company. Yeah. Um, and eventually there was the small documentary someone had made about that, which I think probably about four people had watched. But there it is. Someone had gone through all that trouble. Um, so, yeah, big fan of all of that. Um, and uh, and uh, listening to a lot, a lot of, there's a, a number of podcasts that have uh, influenced what I do. Uh, which aren't necessarily musical ones, but I wanted to have something that was more of a kind of documentary style than um, someone just dryly talking or two blokes having a conversation, which is a common um, format, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I wanted mine to be a little bit, sound a little more produced, even though, as I say, it's, Produced on an absolute shoestring uh, on two iPhones, but it has it has a certain amount of production value to it. So, yeah. So, <laughs> so do, do you um, do you record the insert separately? Do you do you actually go through the uh, your commentary first and then record the the insert separately, or is it all done as you go? Is it all is it all done in one go? No, no, no. It's um, it's all kind of scripted. So I've gone through the audio and I've I've made my comments there. Yeah. Um, and as, as I might said, some um, occasionally I'll spot something when I'm editing it all together. The worst part of the job is to put together the commentary because you're stopping and starting the audio all the time. So you need to do a lot of tiny edits of tiny sections of audio and it, and it, it on, on your timeline, on your screen, it looks um, incredibly complicated and you can make one mistake on that and move the whole lot. Yes. <laughs> couple of, couple of millimeters to the left and the whole thing's out of sync. Um, but um, I record all of the individual features, the little, little song analyses and little historical things and bits about the equipment and the history of the people. They're all done separately. And then I, then I basically export, export them as individual sections and edit them together as one whole thing. Yeah. I I think it's really clever how you're doing it as well, because when you do that, it does sound like uh, it's, it's different as well. Like uh, it's, it's almost, um, it's almost like a film, you know, where you'll have a film that goes through different periods in time. So it's almost like, so you are given a different affectation or sound to when you're doing those inserts as opposed yeah, to, to how you sound the, with the uh, with the commentary. Yeah, I've tried to give them all their own little background music, really. Um, yeah. Well, sometimes I'm, I'm stuck. <laughs> I, have to, I have to think of a new one. but. Um, and one of them I didn't like. There was used to be a piano one, but when you uploaded it, it's it sounded awful because the 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 fidelity had gone down. So that's been replaced with some strings now. But um, the um, the idea being that it, you keep people's interest if you keep altering the sound a bit. So I don't even mind. Sometimes I'm mean, talking to you here on the. Um, the little headphone mic that comes with you, with your phone. Yeah. Uh, and normally I talk into a, a a nicer quality mic, but if I'm chucking an extra piece in, I'll use that because it changes the way it sounds, and it you know if it it's enough that you you 
it captures your attention maybe it's a bit of a bit of variety yeah i, I remember i went into the studio once and i did a recording uh, or took um because i um I, I still use the the four track recorder to do to do demos at home. Wow! Uh, my little four track. Have you and still got that working with a cassette? In it? Yes, yes, I, I still grief. use it. Yeah, and uh, so I've gone into the studio before, and I remember once when I went into the studio and I took the four track with me, and th- and the engineer just said to me, he said, "Do you know what?" He says, "I don't want you to re-record any of this." He says, "Because I like it as it is." Yeah. And I was like, "Wow." And the only thing that ended up happening was basically uh, the person who I got doing the lead vocal, all he did was just put his lead vocal down over all the parts that I'd done. I mean, that's even including the bounce tracks because because the, the thing with four track is, especially with tape cassette or whatever, the more that you bounce, the the fidelity or the sound gets gets altered as well. So it's not quite yeah, as crisp. It's not sometimes, quite as crisp. Sometimes- that's the effect you're going for as well, isn't it? Some, <clears throat> I mean, you could do it with, um, thinking to back in the day, you used to do it with uh, vocals. And yeah. you could take two people singing into a mic and, and overdub them again, and somehow it would squash them a little bit and clean it up a bit, you know, so that you sounded much more sort of um, polished. It, <laughs> it would do something some, something magic it's, that's exactly what happened because i'd i'd bounce down because there was only me at home doing this so I've, I've got myself doing these like la 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 type things in the background and i thought right i've done that there then i do it again so i've, I've double tracked that and then i've done a three then a four and i think i did ended up going all the way up to six mm. so you've got all these six that are all comped onto one comp down to one track so because of the, the loss each time from doing over and over and over and over again and putting them all, bouncing them all down, it actually cleaned it up in a sense and made, made me sound like a better singer than I really am. Yeah, see, it is, it's, it's, uh, there's a certain magic to tape, isn't there? It does, has a quality to it. Uh, here's a question for you. What, what inspired you then to, for, for home recording? Had that anything to do with Mark Lewison's book? the uh, recording sessions oh no no actually i'd not read that at, the, at that point i'd, I'd had oh. a i'd had a uh, four track from the crikey early early 90s i mean initially my even before that funnily enough i was doing this strange thing where i had a dictaphone and i'd record to a dictaphone on a proper size cassette and then in the room that i was in i would then take that cassette put it into my stereo and then put another cassette into the dictaphone oh, tape and, then, tape. and then, yeah. and then I'd play that on the stereo and start recording. And then I'd do the other part so that it's picking up what's on the stereo and then me overdubbing there. And I kept doing that and that, that's how I started doing it was doing it that way with yeah. the dictaphone and the stereo. I remember doing that as a and kid, then I went, but, yeah. and then I went up from that to having a four track uh, task cam. Yeah. In, the, in about me, 91, 92, I think. You made me think of that tape, tape to tape. We had, um, I did, used to do that with a friend and we'd, we'd try and make demos at home, but we did it, did it tape to tape. And then if we wanted to overdub, 
because of the difference in speed between the two tape machines, you had to tune your instruments up higher for the second. <laughs> you had to slightly change the guitar. Yeah. Like, so so you go a up a semitone yeah. and then yeah. do it again. You've got to do it another semitone. It was getting higher and higher. So, yeah, it's... Um, it's just, you tell that the kids today, they'd not believe you. No, they wouldn't. Or just use a capo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's another way around it. I never thought of that. <laughs> so, do you come? If, if you've not come across any problems with with rights, then on using this material? No, yet. Um, I because I'm avoiding the music. Um, yep. and one, there's two reasons for that, though. I mean, one, you're going to hear the same songs a million times um and also i uh, and it tends to break up the narrative which might the point i'm or i'm interested in is the conversations because that's you know that's explaining what's happening so i tend to as best i can chop out the music unless there's conversation going on during it yeah um i might fall foul of when we've got a now we're going to have a, a documentary a lot of the uh, dialogue is going to be um, obviously copyrighted, copyrighted material. Yeah. So that that, but so far I'm okay. I mean, it's not my intention to to uh, produce anything that's going to, um, you know, damage their uh, sales on their, their product. I don't think we're we're releasing anything like the same kind of um, product, to be honest. Yeah. Hey, this is Brian with Concerts That Made Us podcast, and you're listening to Pods Like Us, a great show about other great shows. I was, I was thinking earlier that it's, it's a shame, really, that that book's come out that you're on about, you know, the, the new Get Back book, which mm. incidentally, I've, I've had a message to tell me it's arrived. Um, uh-huh. So I've got to go and pick that up. Um, Enjoy. I will. Thank you. Uh, but... <laughs> It's a shame, really, that you've got that there with the with the bits that that have the explanations at the side. Because I was thinking, it'd be great if you could take this that you're doing as a podcast and then convert it to a book. Uh, I was looking at the the six pads of writing that I've so far worked my way through here. It's a gigantic amount of it's all handwritten. Um, I'm thinking that before you know that maybe at the end of all of this that I could turn it into something because. Um, you're building on work. You've obviously Sulpi's book. There's the They May Be Parted uh, website as well, which is which is also analysing this and and is a great source for for explaining things and the history of stuff. Um, you'll also have this book, and and it's not perfect. Yep. <laughs> some of the some of the transcriptions there, I pointed one out straight away, and I'll probably find others that. I I beg to differ on what they've transcribed. Um, yeah. uh, the first one I spotted was uh, Paul is asking Paul, when they say what key are you in, they're talking about the pitch so they can get in tune. Yeah. So um, so he wants to know what note are you playing? Is that E? So he can go and tune his bass up. And um, but he's he means pitch. He doesn't mean key. Yeah. Um, but. At the end of that conversation, um, I'll, I, Paul says, I'll have to come up to you or something. And, that, and George says, maybe we should come down to you in pitch. Maybe you're right and we're wrong. 
but John then says, um, no, I think we're about concert, as in concert pitch, which is yep. your, the you know, the, the pitch that uh, all instruments in an orchestra tune to. But in the book, it says, I think we're about constant. So, me. you see, I think I'm right. So do I. Yeah. <laughs> well, so do why I. would he say constant? That doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. No. I mean, that, that makes perfect sense saying concert because, like you said, that's that's the way that they, um, you know, all the or- orchestrated instruments a, are They have a, that kind of uh, a musical vocabulary, a kind of Timpan Alley musical vocabulary. They always refer to middle section of a song as a middle eight, which is yep. supposed to be an eight-bar section, but often their middle eights aren't eight bars long. They're very often um, 16. Yeah, or they're not a middle eight at all. He, I think he refers to um, In My Life, uh, the section that goes, all these places had their moments, which is basically another verse. Yeah. But he says, Paul helped me with the middle eight in that song, which isn't a middle eight. It's just a, a verse in it with some different chords. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, th- they had that, that they had... A, a limited kind of a, an old style musical vocabulary. So I think he would have said concert pitch. Yeah. Uh, like, like you said, they had the, they had the way that the way of talking or speaking that a lot of people might not pick up on. So, but you'd have people like Mal who were in the, the clique who would understand precisely what they were on about when they say things. Oh yeah. Jo- George in particular has this peculiar um, Spike Milligan wordplay thing going on a lot of the time when he's, he, he talks about one of the ones you haven't heard yet. He talks about Sun House, who's playing a, a resonator guitar, which he says, Oh, he's got one of them guitars with a big dustbin lid on the front of it. Um, so there's a lot of things like that. When he says, um, Oh, you know, we got uh, in the PA, they've got one of those big deaf aids, he says. Oh, yes. Meaning an amplifier. Yeah. And isn't that weird? It's like, it's just wordplay the whole time. But it's it's quite idiosyncratic uh, because the others don't do it. That explains that line now that that they use in the the album. Yeah. Yeah. Charles Autry and his deaf aids. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to be a slang term that George is using for an amplifier. It's very strange. Absolutely. So then this is what, what I was saying when I was trying to to write about the Beatles, you needed to find their voices and they talk in their own peculiar way. <laughs> it's so funny that. Mm. So um we'll, we'll just quickly touch on this here. I mean, it does I don't think because like like I said, I mean, I think it's uh, the end for the Beatles didn't, you know, unofficially happen for a fair while after this until September of 69 unofficially yeah there's some there's some funny conversations though isn't there there's um they they do talk about do we do we just break up now there's a there's a bit of that going on in a kind of matter of fact way is are they looking to and i i would venture to guess that that's something to do with cream okay the cream split while while they're ahead they stayed together for two years and they quit at the peak and perhaps that's what's in the in the airs john says at one point why don't we come straight from this and we'll make it go straight in the studio while while the 
while the motivation's still there. Yeah. And we'll make an album and then split. Um, now, he's not sure whether he means split as in get out of here, you know, in sort of uh, 60s slang, or whether he means they split up. But it seems to be in the air that maybe, I mean, doesn't Paul say at one point we'll do it like a news show and then the last article will be the Beatles have split up? Yeah. So the the idea that they could make their their ending an event, uh, I think it it does kind of it is a bit inspired by the way that Cream managed their career. Yeah, because yeah, actually that that's that's a good point because you know you you had the uh, the goodbye album by Cream, which was basically it was exactly what it what it what it was called you know they, it, was, it they, was the goodbye it was the farewell they made their break up a a a whole event they toured it and then they did some farewell shows and they released a, an album um and and used it as a way of of making money uh, making as much publicity out of it as possible and and the beatles kind of you know sputtered out in a way yeah where in, in a sense what john was suggesting there which they ended up doing with the Abbey Road album, if it have ended at that point with the Abbey Road album and and that, and in a sense, that would have worked better in the same way as Goodbye worked for Cream. But yeah. unfortunately, so many, so, many months, <laughs> so many months later, you've got the Let It Be album and yeah. they've had to all come back together when they don't really want anything to do with each other. So you've got that animosity there where, you know, when, when there's that picture of them in the, uh, the, the film, you know, in the, in the, you know, watching the film in the, theater. in, in the, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. theater. And you can tell that they really do not want to be in the same room as each other, especially none of them want to be with Paul. Mm. Yeah, he's so, at the back, isn't he? <laughs> absolutely, yep. But you know, if um, if that had not have happened, then the ending of the Beatles would possibly have been better. Yes, tidier. I mean, didn't George say in anthology that the idea of Abbey Road was to finish it up and make it tidy? Yeah, um, which and, it would have done. And I say, and I think the problem with with the get back thing and, and let it be as it, it, it left a sour taste in everyone's mouth, I think. Um, and again, because it, uh, it's influenced by events afterwards, isn't it? It's yep. not re- a representation of January 1969, it's a representation of April 1970. Yes, yeah, uh, and, and how they were with each other at that point. From what I can see of the clips for the the new documentaries, a lot more John in this um, in this documentary. Yeah, um, definitely. Which changes completely everyone's perception of them as being strung out and uncommunicative and all of that. Um, whether the, the, whether he had enthusiasm for um, you know writing new material is is a different thing. Really, he was, he was still. He still enjoyed, you know, playing music. He did, but I mean, I mean, even after after the Beatles, uh, you know, I've had conversations with people about about John, and I've said that 
in some ways, I think that John needed to, uh, from a creative point of view as a musician, I think he needed to work on Yoko's material because then it, there wasn't such a uh, thing on him trying to make his own songs sound a specific way. And he could actually let loose on the instrument as a musician on Yoko mm. stuff, as, a, as opposed to being a creative person. It could just be the musician and the guitarist in the background. Yeah. 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 I, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a shame he didn't pursue a lot of that because it, on those probably what from revolver onwards there was always a an out there john track on the albums wasn't there yeah, you know? yeah. um and he didn't really do anything with that when, when he got into his solo career no i always thought yeah. that that was a was a, a shame really about his solo missed opportunity really you know that was something he should he should have done more of Absolutely. hey this is jack from bad council you want some good counsel keep listening to my man marv pods like us so where does your show logo come from then nick that's um uh, that is a picture of a nagra recorder there um yeah. it's for very much the the type that they would have used on the on the sessions um are you are you were saying you had um a tape recorder reel to reel at home i'd have loved something like that i mean that Wonderful looking bits of kit, aren't they? they are. it takes me back to Mission Impossible or something like that. <laughs> it's funny because I was doing this picture, the picture that's on the notes, and Louise actually said to me when she looked at it, she said, Well, that tape self-destruct in 10 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is it's um it's fact, do you know what? There's a talk about YouTube. There's a um there's a channel called Techmone. He might help you if your four track ever breaks down. Because he's okay. good at rest- he's good at restoring old um, audio equipment, um, which is fascinating. He finds all these obscure formats and gets the gets the machines working again. Um, but one of the episodes he did was on the uh, Mission Impossible tape recorder. Okay, um, and the fact that it's never it's not always the same one. So there's a there's something for you to dig into. There's another recommendation: Techmoan. Brilliant Techmoan. Is it called Tech Moan, you say? Tech. Yeah, I don't know why, where he got that from, but he's, uh, he's a, yeah, he's a very engaging kind of uh, uh, presenter, I suppose. Absolutely. He's just got a nice way about him, so I can I can happily sit there and watch them, <laughs> watch a guy taking audio bits to pieces. It's a strange way to relax. It is. Right, I'm, I'm pulling the curtain away here just to say that I've had a message from Ed Chen to say, are you ready to do my show now? <laughs> no, I told you I'm waffle on. How far are we from the end, do you think? Uh, not, not far. I think we're going into the last three, few bits now because we've touched on, on everything straight. else. Yeah. But needless to say, what you were saying, I think the end of the Beatles was an inevitability. Really? Hey. Well, it was going to end sometime, wasn't it? I think, and yeah. um, and the, once, once when they were at the height of it, and they they were they'd grown up really together. They'd been teenagers when they were first together, at least three of them anyway, and they'd been through all of that. And then this whole thing had just blown up completely out of proportion. But they were all. You know, together as uh, 
as friends and you know they they have a sort of perfect arc to their story in that sense um but eventually they they grew up you know and they um they began to see a, a life outside of just being in their band yeah. Um, um yeah you know so so inevitably i think i think george couldn't have continued inside the group i think he i think he was you know doesn't he say he says on my here we go another little uh, reference to the podcast but on on the um on the old intro music he says i think i've got enough songs for the next 10 years yeah um but i, th- I think so, paul, i think paul was the same though in a way i think you know, looking back on it paul had too many ideas at this point and so did george so there was an inevitability that they would would have to do that for their own uh, creative um, progression. That they would have to do that because there were too there was too much material from those two, at least. Yeah, they they both for, yeah, purple patch, didn't they? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It was uh, it's very uh, as I say the way the way that music just flows out of Paul. Yeah, um, literally pours out of him as you see um, one of the loveliest things i think on on the, the when you listen to all the audio um is is get back just just being birthed from strumming a couple of notes on the bass yeah. i mean, I mean playing, he's playing yeah. one note and that song just emerges out of out of thin air um uh, so yeah. so it's the same with george i mean he, he, he'd go home and then come in the next time so i've written another song yeah, because you know, you know, Paul, like you said, you know, it, it'd come in and go, well, well, this this is the the basis for Golden Slumbers. Um, you know, they'd have um, uh, th- there was a v- variation of Every Night in there, apparently, and Another Day. I think he was mm-hmm. playing some some bits of that. Um, yeah, had Maxwell Silver Hammer, unfortunately. Some people might think I don't mind the song personally. Um, it's but, uh, you know, well, as you. It- as we gone through it there, there was, there's a lot of other ways that song could have gone. You know, yes. they were trying lots of yep. different things and it may not have been quite so predictable. It may have been more, a bit more satirical. It ended up being kind of like schlager, yep. <laughs> like that kind of umpire music. And, 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 you know, it, it had, it had potential to be a different kind of song altogether. I, I actually did a uh, did a guest spot on on Ed Chen's show before, where on when there was Fab, and we were talking about the sound of songs of Music Hall and you know vaudeville, and I was saying to Ed because I had the ukulele with me at the time, and I was going through some of the songs, and so I said to him, I said, for instance, I said Maxwell is actually a variation of exactly that. I said it's just that the, the way that they were pushing the song in that session wasn't really the right arrangement for it. Mm. Whereas if he'd have done it in an old style, a bit like, you know, when I'm 64 and honey pie and things like that, it works better that way than it did the way that it did that they put it out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's kind of the, the production of it and, and everything is, doesn't help it at all really. Yeah, it's, it's more George Formby than uh, than Ray Charles. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
So what other podcasts do you listen to then, Nick? Here we go, long list. Well, yeah, I'll, okay, I won't bore you entirely, but um, amongst my favourites, so nothing is real for the Beatles, I think, is is excellent. Yeah. Um, and I, I love the chemistry between the two presenters. I think that's brilliant. Um, another one I'm uh, actually mentioned me, unbelievably, Ceylon, the Beach Boys podcast. Yes, that's a great podcast. Now, their section on... I mean, that, for, for inspiration um, for that show, but there's section on the whole smiles thing with the, oh, yeah. I mean, the the level of um, uh, research or, or, or forensics, I think, um, when they talk about the Beach Boys Christmas album. Yeah. Now, Beach Boy yeah. fans have managed to find out that the tape that was reused from another session and you can hear bleed through, <laughs> believe yeah. it or not, of another um, track from the tape um, and it comes out on the album. And they found out what it was, which is astounding. Wow. <laughs> I, think, I think that's how – can, how can anyone have actually done that? But they've obviously found the original jazz recording or, or big band recording that they taped over. <laughs> Which is amazing. <laughs> um, there's uh, another one, really the one that inspired me for the way that the format of how I work is something called Murder Mile, um, which is a, it's a guy who does um, those kind of murder sightseeing tours around London um, and lives on a boat and he presents uh, a kind of... A, a, I can't remember it's monthly or something like that, but there's a podcast there. And but he does it with the same kind of idea of using multiple voices and um background ambience and music and all of that. So there's that's really the inspiration for how um I've I've, I've planned out the way that I work. Um screw it, we're gonna talk about the Beatles is hilarious, invariably. <laughs> um and that's just a bunch of guys who, who who freely admit they don't know everything. Um, but the amount of in-jokes in that, um, uh, sometimes you're crying with laughter. Yeah. Um, there's obviously something about the Beatles and Beatles Naked. You'll find a lot of they, – the, there's a tremendous amount of knowledge in there, and they, they go into areas that, that you wouldn't necessarily think of. But – as we know, this subject for a band that we're only really working for seven years, there's such a, a density of information. And you can pick any brief period and, and talk about it for hours, which is extraordinary because they were just so busy. Yeah. As we um, mentioned, you know, there were, there were times where, you know, they'd, they'd hardly have any time away from actually doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Uh, it, um she loves you it's something i was looking at for this um for this one i'm working on i've got my notes in front of me um now she loves you was recorded on the 1st of july 1963 but was written on the 26th of may um by John and Paul in the room at the Turks Hotel in Newcastle in between performances, the matinee and the evening performance <laughs> at the city's majestic ballroom. They wrote that massive hit. Wow. I think that's amazing. 
Yeah. So it is. there is there aren't, and the fact that people know that is just uh, uh, fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. It really is. It, it must be weird being Paul McCartney thinking that these people know exactly where you were on what day. Yeah, I certainly couldn't do that. <laughs> hey, it's Gil from the Mindbird. Today's Mind Culture and Social Podcast. And you're listening to Pods Like Us. But I, I think we need, yeah, I think there's a, there's a, not a need. I mean, you know, it's only us, us people who really care, I suppose. But um, you can't really rely on uh, the remaining Beatles themselves to give you the definitive um, history. Because one, memory is faulty. Um, but also the tale's been told so many times that it, it's, it's often been tidied up to appear more interesting um, or at least easier to tell. Yeah. Um, so you, you get things that, that we, we're discovering as we go through this, um, these tapes, you know, that um, uh, as I was saying earlier, the, um, the narrative is that they go into Apple studios and find that the studio isn't built and they have to get in all this equipment at the last minute. All that equipment was already there. Yeah. Um, because the intention was to, to, to record the show at Twickenham. So they'd already got all the equipment. And, you know, they really hadn't got any concerns about the, the Apple studio apart from whatever they'd built didn't work. Um, and, uh, but it's an easier tale to tell, isn't it? To say, oh, then we went to Twickenham and, oh, it was a disaster. Yeah, What were that's we going to do? Inject a bit of drama. But in fact, they'd already solved that problem. So, like, I said, yeah, yeah. like I said, the 60s version of the Kardashians. Well, there's a, there's an, another interesting thing comes out of um, from listening to Ceylon that um, uh, there's a... Beach Boys myth that on the song they were doing for the Smile uh, sessions, it's a song called Vegetables. Yes. Um, and Paul McCartney is reported to have come on along to the session and been recorded crunching into celery or something. Yep. Um, now, you ask Paul that question in the 90s, and, you know, all this stuff is freely accessible. And they point out that Paul denies it happened at all in the 90s. I don't know right. where they got that from. Uh, that never happened because the Beach Boys like to tell the tale. But uh, he says, no, no, that never happened. Um, but now you ask him about it. Say, oh, yes, I, that's when I went to LA and I crunched celery on their recording, isn't it? You know, <laughs> Because it's a good story. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that, you know, it's good publicity. It's not necessarily factual. Nope. So that's the that's the service of when you're doing a little bit of scholarly work or or digging in on the on the Beatles stuff, you you are getting at least closer to the truth. Absolutely. So, what advice would you give to people starting a podcast for the first time, Nick? Uh, I would say um, know where you're heading. I think you have to have the plan. I've, I'm fortunate in a way 
that I'm not doing a generic kind of a Beatles podcast where I have to keep thinking of subjects. Um, this has got a beginning and an end. And, you know, I'm heading, and uh, unstoppably, I'm going to be heading towards the, the final parts of these tapes and then, then it will conclude. Um, but have a plan, definitely. And, and don't overstretch yourself. Don't assume you're going to be able to produce something every week. Um, because there's much more to it than you would uh, you would anticipate, I think, Absolutely. in terms of the preparation and and fitting in with your life. You know, um, yeah, yeah. For instance, don't um, assume you'll be able to just stand in front of the mic and and get all your words out properly, because you'd be you'd be amazed how you've forgotten how to pronounce words as soon as you start pressing and record. <laughs> Yeah, you suddenly start pressing record and you can't talk. <laughs> it's red light fever, isn't it? They can read. So it's like I, I suddenly I've, I've and I've learned um, I've noticed the kind of cadence of of other people's uh, on on television, the way that they phrase words now, um, which is clearly where they they've got the same problems where you run two vowels in together, which you can do normally in conversation, but when you're reading an auto cue things with the in them become suddenly really difficult to get to the next word yes. very strange yep. especially if but it starts hey. with a vowel with the other or something like that or the alternative or something. i don't know why you, you anything to, like that yeah. you you can't blur those words together you end up mumbling them so you have to do it again yeah, yeah, you, you, you're almost um, self-edit. You're editing yourself as you're talking. That's that's another problem as well. Uh, yes, yeah. You, if yeah, you must never think when you're speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Don't pay attention to your own to what what you're reading. Just although sometimes I come back and I think, oh, I've left out a whole word there and not even noticed. Uh, yes, but it's it's. Um, it's a it's been a steep learning curve, but it's been absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. I've thought I've thought the same about myself. So where can people find you and get a hold of the show then, Nick? You can get me on the all of the regular platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Deezer, Podbean, etc. I think the only one I'm not on is um Amazon Music. Uh I just haven't bothered with that one. Yeah. I think it was more difficult to get on than the others. That's why I kind of give up. But um, but learning how to do that was a revelation as well. It's, it's, it's quite involved, isn't it? Learning how it to really is. Get, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, but um, yeah, quite pleased with my progress so far. Anyway, yeah, it's not the easiest thing to do, is it? Because you, you just think to yourself before before doing this, you think, well, I'll put the podcast there, and it's going to go to all these places. But no, there's all these little things that you have to do. Like you go to another page and go, well, I want it to go there, I want it to go there, and to go there, and it's very time consuming, even that bit. Yeah, that is it. RSS feed or something, isn't it? Yeah, you have to, that's it, yeah, yeah. Have to register all these different um, sites, but. Yeah, once you're there, it's great because it all magically happens, doesn't it? You know, you schedule yourself in and up it pops at the right time. Although I did have a weird thing where uh, some of my episodes in season one just stopped coming through on iTunes and then they did again. Um, I think that was something to do with an Apple update, but um, 
if something yes. goes wrong, yeah. I would not have a clue how to get it, get it fixed. No, no. I so, remember that, actually. I had the same problem with my show when that happened. Apple had a uh, an upgrade, and <clears throat> podcasts were not easy to get hold of for a bit. Yeah, yeah. I had a few people complaining. But no, we're all, we're all back and running. We have yeah. season three. I can't remember when. It's... Uh, it's about another four four weeks, I think. Ah, that's that's perfect for the uh, get back film coming out. Yeah, I'm thinking I might do a little uh, a little short one on the on the book and what we know so far about the documentary because I think that's that's fascinating. Absolutely. Um, um, but yeah, it will just be it'll just be a, like a ten minute thing. Um, just, just you know, because I've got the book, I should have a look through it and um, and pick out the best bits. I think it it reads a little like what it what it reminded me of where when I was a kid, I had um, the scripts for Forty Towers, <laughs> <laughs> and it had pictures of the show, you know, and then the dialogue, and that's kind of how they laid it out. And I thought, well, I wonder if it's the script for the actual TV series, but apparently not. It's a standalone thing. Um, but did, yeah, it's. Uh, did John Cleese write the book then that you that you got? Uh, no, they literally the script the scripts just put down you know, out with no context at all. They were just all, all the episodes just dumped in a book with some black and white stills. Yeah, Forty Towers were written by John Cleese and his then wife Connie Booth. Correct. Anyway, so, so take you back to the time they got paid five hundred pounds for their trouble. <laughs> wow! If people want to work out how much that is now, off you go. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's not a lot, even even, even back today. Then, that's not a lot of money. No. So what I shall do then so, is I'll I'll put uh, I'll put in the show notes. I'll put a uh, what we call a pod follow link, and take oh, them what. You. What what that does is it 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 takes people to the the whatever they uh, they use to listen to podcast on it will take it to that podcast provider's page for your show. That is That's what that clever. does. It really yeah. Yeah. It, it it was great when I discovered that it was fantastic. Yeah, I, I should I should look that up because then I should post that on Twitter. But you can uh, um uh, everything is winter of discontent pod if you want to find me on the social media or you know twitter uh facebook instagram and and the email is uh winter discontent pod at gmail.com so i like receiving emails and um, people tell their stories and i've read a few of them out um you have yeah because it's and, and i'd like that because i'd like us all to kind of go through this stuff together sometimes i throw things i can't understand properly I'll throw out to, to the listeners and I hope that someone will will, will twig what's being said because we should all, you know, work on this together. It's, uh, I think, yeah, I think yeah, it'd be nice yeah. to have, have a definitive um, version of, of exactly what went on. Because yeah. there's, there's yeah. been a bit of misinterpretation, I think, over the years. So do I. I, I like the fact that we are... To a degree, the listeners are going through all this at the same the same as you're going through it, even yeah. though we are about three weeks behind you. Yes. 
well, six, three episodes behind me. Yeah. Yeah. Six weeks <laughs> but, behind, so three yeah. episodes, yeah. But that's why I've left a little bit of a longer gap, so I can um, get a couple more episodes under my belt before we come back. Because God forbid I should run out, you know, I should get sidetracked by something and run out midway through a series. I'd hate to do that. That's so, called life. Yes, it does. It, it has a tendency to get in the way, most annoyingly. It does. It really does. Anyway, I don't want to irritate Ed Chen and everybody else on the next show I'm recording. <laughs> okay. Yes, so, do, do carry on. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for having me. It's been, Thank a, you very been much. absolutely lovely. Yep. So, yep, thanks very much, Nick, for chatting with me. This was fun, and yes, I knew, I knew it would be great. Well, thank you very much for your support, Marv. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And I hope you listen again to another episode of Pods Like Us.